Hey everyone, Suzanne Tulin here, Brand Clarity. I am Jess Lunabelle. This is Josh Harley, CEO of Fathom Realty. This is Garrett Maroon, a business by relationship. This is Krista Maysher, and you are listening to Dish and Dirt with Gary Pickren in South Carolina, the only podcast dedicated to the real estate agent craft. And greetings and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dish and Dirt. I'm your often irreverent and very opinionated but rarely wrong host, Gary Pickering, coming to you from Blair Cato Pickering Casterline in downtown Columbia, South Carolina, this the second week of March 2022. Today, I have a couple of really cool things that we need to go over. First, I want to go over the risk that a real estate agent has when handling wholesale closings. We're going to look at that from the standpoint of the real estate agent doing wholesale closings as well as representing sellers in the marketing and advertising properties that are being wholesaled. We're also going to look at it from the MLS standpoint, licensing law standpoint, as well as the Realtor Code of Ethics standpoint. Secondly, an Oregon judge just struck down the ban on buyer love letters that has become a flashpoint in real estate over the last couple of months. This was done as an attempt to try to eliminate possible fair housing claims, and the court has struck down that. So we're going to look at what that actually means to you. We know wholesaling and love letters together with appraisal gaps has been one of the hottest topics in real estate in the past 12 months. And today we're going to hit two of those issues for you. But first, if you've not already purchased your tickets for the first ever Real Estate Success Summit in Columbia on April 7th, which is brought to you by Blair Cato Pickering Casterline, you need to do so now. Tickets are almost gone, and in fact, they may already be gone by the time that you actually listen to this podcast. Tickets will not be available the day of the event, so if you are planning on attending, you need to go ahead and try to get your ticket now before they are all gone, and we do expect this to sell out any day now. And if you don't get your tickets now, you're going to have to wait for a whole other year to get the content that normally you would have to fly to Las Vegas or go to New York, go to M and Select, one of those events to get the same kind of content where you would spend thousands of dollars in airfare and hotels alone, even including the admission price. And here in Columbia, you're getting that only for $50, which essentially covers your breakfast, lunch, and happy hour that we're providing you at the event on April 7th. So next week, Eric Sachs from Breakthrough Broker will be our guest on Dish and Dirt. He is one of our keynote speakers at that event. If you want to go ahead and listen to some of the speakers before you actually get to see them in person, Krista Mashore appeared on Audition Dirt on January 13th, 2022, in episode number 61. Jeff Lobb appeared on February 17th, 2022, in episode 66. Suzanne Tuline was on episode 47 on October 7, 2021. Sarah Hash was on January 6, 2022. And on my birthday, November 18, 2021. Episode 53 was with Brigham Waite. So if you want to see some of our speakers before you actually come on April 7th, go back and listen to some of those old podcasts. You can find those on any podcast platform that you follow us on, or you can always go to BlairCato.com, click on the podcast button, and find all of our previous episodes. So let's go ahead and jump into wholesaling and the risks that a real estate agent has in working with wholesalers. This may be the actual hottest topic in real estate over the past two years. The very first podcast I ever did was on wholesaling, and that podcast aired on September 27, 2020, and today is still the third most listened episode of my podcast. So I do recommend you give that one to listen to. The act of wholesaling is very controversial, as governing bodies all over this country 
believe that it's the unlicensed practice of real estate. So governing boards, whether it's a real estate commission or real estate agencies, depending on your state, they meet annually at a conference called Arillo, and they discuss common issues amongst the states. Wholesaling is one of those topics that always comes up and is a regular topic of concern at these hearings. It's also a regular topic of concern at the Real Estate Commission here in South Carolina. Those meetings are open to the public, and if you ever attend any of those meetings, you will see from time to time that this issue presents itself. The act of wholesaling is where one party enters into a contract to purchase a property and then immediately tries to sell or flip that property before closing on the purchase. This is often done through an assignment of the contract. They basically buy it uh, or enter into a contract to buy it for one price, and then they immediately sell the contract for a higher price to somebody else, and they keep the difference as the assignment fee. It also might be done with simultaneous closings. They actually buy it, close it, and then sell it and sell it to somebody else for a higher price. If these closings are done incorrectly, they can violate federal law on flipping, which can actually land you in federal jail. Um, And you could also make it very difficult for the end user to ultimately get a loan. And sometimes that becomes impossible because there are certain holding periods of title for the seller before they will let the property be sold to another person who gets a federally insured loan. A lot of times the sale or the contract or the flip of the contract to this property is done without the owner's knowledge. And that's where the true problem comes in these things. The money made from the assignment or the money made from the flip is akin to a flip in a lot of real estate officials' minds. And then you add that issue of the homeowner not knowing on top of that, and it becomes a big issue for the real estate agent. A lot of states are actually seeking to ban wholesaling or either to require a license to do so because a lot of these states believe wholesaling is nothing more than acting without a real estate agent license. Some states have already issued injunctions against wholesalers, claiming the practice, again, is acting without a license as a state requires. So let's first look at the issue a real estate agent faces in representing a wholesaler as a listing agent. The first question you need to ask yourself as a listing agent, or what exactly are you listing? Are you listing the property or are you trying to list the contract? What does the wholesaler actually own in trying to get you to sell for them? Anything? Do they have any ownership rights to anything other than they have a contractual right to buy the property? And that's going to be very important as we talk about this. Does the property owner know what's going on? If the property owner finds out how much more you're going to sell the property for for their buyer, are they going to freak out and then file an action against you, whether it's a grievance or a legal action, claiming that somehow you were involved in some scheme to divest them of the interest or the equity they have in the property? So let's first look at the MLS. In most jurisdictions, you will find that listing a wholesale property is going to violate your requirements under the MLS agreement. Most MLS have a rule that says you must have a valid listing agreement with the property owner in order to list the property. When you are listing a property for a wholesaler, you do not have a listing agreement with the property owner. The property owner is the one who has sold the property under contract to that buyer that you are now representing and trying to sell the property for. The buyer of that property doesn't have title to the property. All they have is a contractual right to buy the property. So you're not essentially listing property for a property owner. You're basically listing a contract for somebody who has a contractual right to purchase the property. That's not allowed in most MLSs. So you need to check with your current MLS to see what the listing requirements are to see if you are allowed to even list a contract and not list the property. 
Remember, if you're marketing the property that the buyer does not own, you're not marking property, you're marketing a contract. Secondly, you have to look at licensing law. What is the language under your licensing law? In South Carolina, in order to list property, in order to advertise and market it, you have to have a listing agreement with the actual property owner. In South Carolina, our law under 4057-135-E1 says, a licensee may not advertise, market, or offer to conduct a real estate transaction involving real estate owned in whole or in part by another person without first obtaining a written listing agreement between the property owner and the real estate brokerage firm with which the licensee is associated. It's very important to look at the key word here. The key wording here is property owner. It doesn't say contractual owner. It doesn't say the seller. It says property owner. So when you are listing property for a wholesaler and they do not have proper title to the property, meaning they haven't been issued a deed, They're not the property owner. They just have a contractual right to buy the property. So do not put anything in the the MLS. Do not market or advertise anywhere in the state of South Carolina property for a wholesaler unless that wholesaler has actual title to the property. Doing so violates South Carolina state law, period. End of discussion. In other states, you have to look and see what your state licensing law is, but I assume it's probably very similar that in order to market or advertise property, you have to have a listing agreement signed by the property owner. So if you're going to list property for a wholesaler and they don't have record title of that property, you're going to have to go to the seller, the person who is selling the wholesaler of the property, and get them to also consent to listing the property by having that property owner sign a listing agreement in order to comply with the law in South Carolina and probably in most other states as well. And in South Carolina, we've already handled a case This come before the commission on this very issue where the agent listed for the wholesaler the property in the multiple listing service. The property owner claimed that they had no no knowledge of the listing. They had no knowledge of any of it. All they knew is that they had entered into a contract with this wholesaler and believed that the wholesaler was buying the property. What happened was once the property owner found out that the wholesaler was now listing the property for $20,000 more than the wholesaler was buying the property for, That made the property owner really mad and said that the agent and the wholesaler were basically stealing all their equity in the property. Because the agent did not have a listing agreement signed by the property owner, but rather the wholesaler, they violated state law and they were therefore punished for that. So this is a real thing that you need to be really careful about and stop listing wholesale properties in the MLS, on Facebook, on internally, whatever you do to market it, unless you have a signed listing agreement from the property owner. Let's next look at the Code of Ethics at the National Association of Realtors. Multiple possible violations here. Number one, you could be violating Article 2, which requires realtors to avoid exaggerations, misrepresentation, or concealment of pertinent facts. This is certainly a pertinent fact that the person that you are listing the property for doesn't actually own the property. That is a concealment of a very much of an pertinent fact to the transaction. Article 11 says the services which realtors provide to their clients and customers shall conform to the standards of practice and competency which are reasonably expected in the specific real estate disciplines. That could be an allegation if you are listing property in which you don't have a valid listing agreement. Article 12, realtors shall be honest and truthful in their real estate communications to present a true picture in their advertising, marketing, and other representations. Are you truly presenting a true picture when you are not marketing property for the property owner, but rather trying to market a contract, a flip, an assignment of a contract? You're not providing a truthful and honest picture of the transaction. 
Article 16, if another agent represents the property owners, are you not violating this article? Realtors shall not engage in any practice or take any action inconsistent with exclusive representation or exclusive brokerage relationship agreements with other realtors. So if Realtor A already has a uh, listing agreement with the property owner, and that's how the transaction came together with the wholesaler, and now the wholesaler is trying to hire you to market and sell the property, how are you not interfering with the engagement and the agency relationship between the actual property owner and that agent? How can you list property that's already been listed by somebody else? I think that's clear a violation of Article 16. Now, I've heard a lot of people claim that somehow the contract creates an equitable interest, and so therefore you don't violate the law. Well, first of all, in South Carolina, the law isn't an equitable interest. It's the property owner. You're not a property owner as a wholesaler. The equitable interest claim to me is 100% without merit, and I think the Real Estate Commission in hearing that case also agreed it was without merit. You need to check the state law to see if an equitable interest is created in property. I don't believe so in South Carolina. If it creates an equitable interest, you have a big problem because if a buyer by its very nature of entering into a contract with you or with a seller has created an equitable interest, then the only way to ever extinguish that equitable interest if the property does not close is going to be through a foreclosure action and getting a court order extinguishing it or getting a quit claim deed extinguishing it. So if we go the route of saying that in every transaction, when a buyer enters into a contractual agreement to purchase property, it creates an equitable interest. What we are essentially arguing is that every time a property doesn't close, we now need a quick claim deed or a court order. I don't think that's a position that the real estate agencies want to take. Now, acting as a wholesaler is also another issue for you. You have fiduciary duties of honesty and fair dealing with all consumers, not just clients, but with all consumers under state law and under the articles. How is buying a property for less than it's worth and immediately advertising it to sell for substantially more square with that duty of honesty and fair dealing. What is it you said to the owner of that property that made them sell the property to you for less than it worth? And does it really matter what you actually said? What's more important is what that property owner says that you said that convinced them to sell the property for substantially less than the true value. So if you're buying property for ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars less and immediately flipping the property within minutes of getting the offer, trying to sell it for more, you're going to have to answer that question to perhaps a real estate commission or to a court or to the realtor association as to what you said to the seller to get them to sell the property to you for substantially less and how that is squared with the duty of honesty and fair dealing that you have toward the consumer. My point being is if you are doing wholesaling or if you're representing a wholesaling, if you're representing a wholesaler, do so very cautiously. Now let's move over to love letters. I did a podcast on May 13th, 2021 about buyers and sellers remorse, as well as love letters. It was in my episode number 28. You should check it out. In that episode, I discussed the issues with love letters, and I'm going to briefly touch on those issues now. But for a more thorough discussion, go back, listen to that podcast, and you'll find a lot about what you need to know about love letters. Now, love letters in real estate are basically letters written by the buyer to the seller, telling the seller why that seller should sell the house to this particular buyer. It typically happens in multiple offer situations. The letters are basically an emotional tug at the seller in which the letters include items about why this buyer is so worthy of the house and how much their family deserves to be the winning bidder. 
In some case, the buyer goes as far as discussion of health issues that they are suffering or their children are suffering or other family members as their reasons why they need to be the winner in this multiple offer situation. I personally hate these letters, and I think they're extremely manipulative. I think the only thing the seller should be looking at is the terms of the contract that are best for them. They should be looking at price, the closing time, the likelihood of it's going to close, the earnest money and other factors, and whether these people are good people or not good people is irrelevant. And I don't necessarily believe the information in these letters is always true. You're being given all this information from the buyer about how wonderful they are and all these issues they have in their family, but you have no way of confirming those issues are even legit. Now, the only time I see true value in a love letter is when the seller has an historical type house and they are trying to make sure that the buyer is not going to tear it down and they're going to preserve its nature. I understand an investor perhaps going in with information about their intent to renovate the property or trying to pay respects to the historic value of the particular home. The problem with these love letters, they often include information about race, sex, age, national origin, religion, health, familial status, sexual orientation of the buyer, which could place that buyer in a disadvantage for possible discrimination. From a buyer standpoint, I don't always think they're smart because there are people who still discriminate. I also think it places the seller and the agents at extreme risk for perhaps a false claim of discrimination. Imagine if the seller accepts another similar offer from a non-protected class member that wasn't based solely on price. Perhaps they were looking at other factors such as the ease of closing, the possibility it will close, the timing of closing, whether it's cash or a risky type of loan or a loan that's going to take 45 days. Things of that nature are important in today's market. Everything isn't just about price right now, particularly when people are offering above the asking price and it's unlikely the house is going to appraise anyway for that. We're now looking at other factors like how quickly can they close? Who's their lenders going to be? Uh, What's the, the likelihood of this closing on time or the buyer backing out? So there's a lot of other factors. And when the offers are the same in dollar price or maybe even the protected classes for even more. When these love letters are involved, it makes it look like discrimination. And that puts the seller at risk. That puts the real estate agents at risk. In Oregon, on January 1st of this year, a law went into effect that prohibited the use of love letters. And the law garnered national attention as Multiple states have wrestled with this issue. It has been discussed at the South Carolina Real Estate Commission, and the National Association of Realtors has actually offered advice on this very topic. On Thursday, Housing Wire issued a report that talked about this case in particular. And they reported that Marco Hernandez, which is a federal judge based in Oregon, that he held that the new law violated free speech rights of real estate agents, and he issued a very nuanced 29-page written order voiding the state law. The judge found that Oregon's ban was, quote, of all non-customary documents sent from prospective buyers to sellers in a real estate sale is a broad sweep that will have the effect of banning other innocuous information prospective buyers provide in love letters. Judge Hernandez added specifically that it restricts the speech of agents who in practice write or at least edit the letters in question. I thought most of the letters came from the actual buyer and less from the agents. We don't recommend you get involved at all, particularly in the writing. Now, the case made its way to the court because a mid-sized boutique real estate company called Total Real Estate Group joined the Pacific Legal Foundation and filed this lawsuit. The Pacific Legal Foundation's attorney's name is Daniel Ortner, and he called the order a major free speech victory. 
quote, the state cannot ban important speech because someone might misuse it. Oregon's law was overly broad speech restriction is clearly not justified. Now, as a result of the order, Oregon's legislatures and the Oregon Real Estate Agency, which is basically their version of a real estate commission, is now going to have to revisit the law and see if they can't redraft it into an acceptable law. I do think it's interesting that Judge Hernandez in this situation, he noted that from the testimony of an expert that 93% of all letters disclosed the potential buyer's race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, national origin, marital status, familial status, or disability. And factoring in in any of those indications or identifications in a real estate sale defines the Fair Housing Act. But ultimately, what he ruled on was that House Bill 2550, too broad, and it's not tailored to solve, specifically solve the problem of letters that that perpetuate discrimination. The judge wrote, quote, to express a desire to live permanently in an area, to explain unusual provisions of the offer, to discuss the love of gardening and how the home is well situated for the growing of plants, to admire the architectural style of the home and to explain why a certain repair is important to the prospective buyer is important. But that ain't what the letters are. 90% of those letters, as they just admitted, 93% of those letters contain information about the person's protected status. It doesn't always relate to these things that the judge referenced. Occasionally it may, but the love letters I've seen and I've been told about by from real estate agents truly are why they should be the ones buying the house and it's an emotional tugging at the seller's emotional strings. And the agents I talk to locally say that they often include pictures of the family. A law that may eliminate these communications, according to the judge, goes too far and needs to be basically overturned. So what does all this mean? First, Oregon can go back and redraft a law that maybe that doesn't prohibit all letters, but prohibits real estate parties from intentionally disclosing evidence of race, religion, sexual orientation, health matters, and things of that nature. They can limit perhaps those things, but not eliminate all letters. Additionally, the ruling does not mean in Oregon that a real estate agent has to present those letters or that a seller has to accept them. And the same holds true in South Carolina. Our advice to you remains and has been for a long time to follow the advice of the National Association of Realtors, which on October 23, 2020, offered the following advice. And the advice was, before the next time you are faced with a buyer love letter, consider the best practices to protect yourself and your clients from fair housing liability. Number one, educate your clients about fair housing laws and the pitfalls of buyer love letters. Number two, inform your clients that you will not deliver buyer love letters and advise others that no buyer love letter will be accepted as part of the MLS listing. Number three, remind your clients that the decision to accept or reject an offer should be based on objective criteria only. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Number four, if your client insists on drafting a buyer love letter, do not help your client draft or deliver it. Number five, avoid reading any love letter drafted or received by your client. And lastly, document all offers received and the seller's objective reasonings for accepting the offer. I think that is very sound advice from the National Association of Realtors. I do not believe that love letters should be part of the transaction. I have heard of people doing some really bizarre things in these love letters and setting out all kind of outrageous reasons why they should be the winning bid. Your seller should look at the offer in the contract and make the determination based solely on that. Race, religion, national origin, or color should have no factor in this whatsoever, and it should only be based on how good of an offer it is. 
So I hope this information will keep you safe and sound and out of trouble. So now I want to shift gears. Next week, Eric Sachs of Breakthrough Broker will be my guest on Dish and Dirt, and he'll be discussing 10 technologies, also known as prop techs, that real estate agents should be using and may not even know about. But today, I'm going to go ahead and give you a bonus listen to a prop tech that we discussed after the show that I think is really cool. So I went ahead and had him record a couple of minutes as to that, that prop tech that I think you guys should know about. So let's take a listen real quick to a free technology that most of you already have that you may not know has this feature that I do believe would be a valuable asset to you. I've heard you speak about Facebook list. Could you talk about that for a minute? Because I think yeah, I had it on the, I had it I had it on this class, but it's so hard to talk about without visual. So yeah, here, talk and, about and, the concept of it, I guess. And and it's weird. Sometimes Facebook has it, and sometimes they don't. So here's the thing: on the left hand side, you should see a word that says friends. Click on it. When you click on that, it should open up this thing where you're allowed to create a list. What that means? It's not a group. It's nothing like that. It allows you to organize your friends within your Facebook. So let's say, for example, you are like, man, my past clients, they must have just, the Smiths must have just got off Facebook. And then you go find them and they post every day. You're just not seeing them because of the algorithm. So what Facebook did was created this list thing where you could go in and create friends lists and you could say past clients. And you could put all your past clients in this one list. And then you can click on that past clients list. And now that's who you see in your newsfeed. So you can keep an eye on your past clients and like and comment, like and comment. And when you post to those people, they're the only ones that see that. It doesn't go to your general news. Creating friends list is a really great way to keep an eye on your sphere. And I would create past client lists and like and comment. I create past coworker lists and like and comment. Um, I create neighborhood lists, soccer parents lists. And, and because there's things you want to post just to the soccer parents, it's not a group. It's not a group. It's not a page. It's just, and they don't even know you created this list. It's just a way of organizing your friends so that you can see who you want to see instead of rely on the algorithm. That's incredible because one of the things that all the coaches that we have had over the years on our podcast say is you want to remain top of mind and, and communicate with that client. So if you have a list of past clients and you're liking their posts, you're commenting on their posts, they just went to say, uh, Jamaica for their vacation, and you can just say, "Hey, y'all are in Jamaica. Looks awesome. Hope you had a great time." You never know when that past client is either thinking of buying or selling themselves, or have other friends. Find awareness. Of just course. put them right back. And I think statistically, we used to get almost all of our clients from referrals, and that number now from past client referrals, that number's plummeted because there's so many different people in front of them, and this keeps you in front of them. Of course, you nailed and, it. So that's Eric's take on. Facebook list. And I do think it is an incredible thing to implement in your practice and look to implement it in mine as well. Don't forget to tune in next week to Eric as well when he goes over 10 to 12 other prop techs that will absolutely blow your mind. And in fact, I've already started implementing about two or three of them myself. And most of them are free of charge or very minimal charges as well. Dish and Dirt will be back with him next week. So that's all the time we have for our show this week. We hope you got a lot of value out of that today. Don't forget to like us, share us, and subscribe to us. And please don't forget to hit that five-star button, proving to the world that Dish and Dirt does not suck. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Don't forget to send your closings to Blair, Cato, Pickering, and Casterline. And we'll see you back here next Thursday.